Tennessee Williams once quipped, America has only three cities, New York, San Francisco, and New Orleans. All the rest are Cleveland. Obviously, this is a statement I take issue with, and if there's at least one city in this country that won't get mistaken for Cleveland anytime soon, it's Santa Fe. And while it was bypassed following the Roots realignment in 1937, I don't think any trip along 66 is complete without a stop there. This handsome town of adobes predates the Mayflower and has borne witness to revolts, multiple flags, and Wild West shootouts. Yet it's also consistently lured free thinkers and intellectuals of different stripes, people like Georgia O'Keeffe, D.H. Lawrence, and Robert Henry, who in 1917 said, Here painters are treated with that welcome and appreciation that is supposed to exist only in certain places in Europe. It was around then on a hill about a mile past the main plaza, a colony of artists began to spring up on Canyon Road. Their imprint remains in the fact that six of its blocks today house over 100 galleries. These spaces are supported by visitors from Aspen and Scottsdale who gladly drop thousands on landscapes before sampling the tasting menus at Geronimo. But on the district's eastern fringe sits a low-slung building of stucco and cedar beams whose walls house an establishment that bridged this district's well-heeled present to its bohemian past. Its name as announced by its wooden sign, is El Farol. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Just going to take a quick break to let you know about another podcast I think you'll love. It's called Subtitle, and it tells stories about languages and the people who speak them. It's produced in documentary style by award-winning journalists Patrick Cox and Kavita Pillay, and is smart but approachable and totally engaging. One episode I particularly enjoyed explores how climate change is threatening Louisiana's French speakers, while others have touched on words programmed to make us laugh, and even people's very first and last words. You can find subtitle on Apple or wherever you're listening. And now, let's get back to the show. It's Friday night at El Farol, and over the barroom's din of laughter and clinking glasses rises the guitar of Mario Febres. A handsome, sharp-featured 30-something of Peruvian descent, he cuts a striking figure strumming from a chair opposite the hostess stand in an all-black, open-collared suit. Born in, of all places, York, Pennsylvania, he tells me that music brought him to Santa Fe, and that flamenco actually wasn't his first love. I actually started out in a punk rock band, and uh, one of the punk bands that I was listening to had a Spanish-type guitar intro, and it got me more curious about flamenco. So then I decided to research more about it. I came out to Mexico for college to continue studies with Chuscales and different incredible artists that come from Spain and that have been associated with uh, the National Institute of Flamenco. When I hear this, I remark that transitioning from punk to flamenco seems like quite the journey. Then I meet Mario's friend and musical cohort, singer Vicente Griego, who apparently followed a similar road. Uh, I feel like flamenco found me when I was maybe 20 years old. Um, I'm not one of these people who, who's elementary school went to the flamenco show and my life was touched and I wanted to be a flamenco artist. 
In fact, I had just gotten kicked out of my punk band and dumped by my girlfriend. And um, I, I, I went to a show before that all happened at the community college in Española. And when I heard her sing and I saw the interaction between she and the dancers and my primo Gabriel Osuna playing the guitar, I, I knew that I was supposed to be singing as well. I think that flamenco really, besides the fact that it shares some of the defiance with punk rock, uh, you know, kind of like standing up to the mainstream, standing against colonization, resisting all of these changing forces that were imposed upon Gitano people, um, you know, that's, first of all, let me tell you, th those are the similarities that it shares with other genres. What makes it really distinct to me is the sense of people. In punk rock, everybody's your people and nobody's your people. But in flamenco, the people that you're going to see me up there with, that's my people right there. And when you sing, you sing for your pueblo. You sing for your family. You sing for the resistance and the survival of your, of your ancestors, of the descendants that are going to follow. And that's what really makes it distinct to me. Decades later, Vicente has more than earned the right to call himself a flamenco singer. A large man whose long dark hair, beard, and commanding voice are Shakespearean in presence. He's toured with Jose Greco and appeared on prestigious stages around the world. Yet El Farol remains a personal favorite, and its luminous owner, Frida Keller Scott, tells me of the significance of its name. El Farol means lantern or light, and they used to hang a light outside the front door, a lantern on when the restaurant was open, and the villagers would know, coming from the acequia back to the plaza, that the restaurant was open. And so that's why we always have our lights on. A tall, blue-eyed Californian with flowing chestnut hair, Having put in years as GM, Frida took the reins of El Farol in 2017. We're chatting under a fresco in the bar's earth-toned, taverna-like front room, which the New York Times proclaimed one of the best on earth. And while you won't find fault in their margaritas, sangria, or paella, this reputation is owed more to its bewitching atmosphere, or as Vicente calls it, embrujo. There's an embrujo here, and respect that embrujo respect those old spirits that are in the vigas and in the walls and in the hands that made the adobe. And so take it slow, take it easy. Don't try to crowd in on something that's not yours. Instead, let it invite you in. And then you enter like a guest and not an intruder. You know, what? just driving here, you drive down these ancient streets and those adobe walls and they get lit up at Christmas time and you don't know what century you're in. And so just getting here is, is a blessing. And then you walk in the door and you feel like if you walked into something that like you're totally welcome, but, but you're almost not even supposed to be there because you don't want to disturb it, right? And so it's got that vibe of like, there's something sacred here. You know, there's, there's something here that is really different than any other strip mall that you're gonna go or, or some bar named like Mackinetti's or some pool hall sports bar with a giant TV screen or, I mean, El Farol is totally, totally different. It's special, but it's also not, it's also not pious, it's wild. Recognized as New Mexico's oldest restaurant, having opened in 1835, 
Its rooms are steeped in memories, and longtime former owner David Salazar tells me of a few of its incarnations. Yes, it was called La Cantina del Cañón, uh, and it was the, uh, the, the, the bar of, of Canyon Road. And, uh, and it was a place that used to be, they used to sell everything besides booze and, and things of that sort in the back. In the back, there was a there was a building in the back that used to be a a barber shop and a, they sold grocery store, and it's the place where people that came from downtown Santa Fe as they were going into the canyon to either have a picnic or to have to to cut wood or to, to go hiking or things of that sort. That's where they stopped and that's where they got their stuff and 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 on the way back they stopped and got a drink and that was in the uh, in the 1800s. And so uh, then it got to be a bar and a restaurant, and it was a pretty, uh, 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 quite a bar. <laughs> From what I've heard, the legends of La Cantina are pretty epic, as figures like Willa Cather, arts patron Mabel Dodge Lujan, and John Wayne are all said to have spent nights here. And showing me its famous sunken bar, where patrons imbibe from the comfort of straight-back chairs, Frida points towards a relic of this saloon's rough past. About three quarters of the way down the bar, there is a bullet hole. And so, I mean, there's lots of stories. Billy the Kid was here. There was the, the history of all the famous people that have come through El Farol has been amazing. But that bullet hole um, was quite interesting. And there's quite a few stories of how that came about. <laughs> I heard that somebody got really mad at the bartender, <laughs> so maybe he didn't serve him the right drink, I don't know, but uh, it's a lot of fun. It's definitely Wild Wild West and uh, a lot of a fun bar. There used to be, uh, you could go right through the door and horses would go right up to the bar. Yet while many original details remain, the white tablecloth dining room signifies that after changing its name to El Farol in the 60s, the restaurant became far more than a rustic dive, and if the space is haunted, I'd wager the spirits of any outlaws are far outnumbered by those of artists whose vibrant, colorful works cover its white stuccoed walls. Some of these paintings date to the 1940s, but many more were encouraged by Mr. Salazar, who recognized their value. Proof of the fact that there were bohemians and, 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 uh, and artists and things of that sort is the fact that uh, there started to appear on the walls of El Farol uh, murals, you know, and they all did it uh, for the same reason, you know, to pay for their food, to pay for their drink, and to pay for their nights. And uh, they just happened to be very good artists and came to be very well known. And when I, when I bought it, other artists started coming in and they knew I was receptive to doing that kind of thing. We started adding more things more things to that. Roland Van Loon, who was a, a Hawaiian young man that came to Santa Fe. Another gentleman that came was um, Sergio Moyano, an extremely interesting young man born in, uh, in Argentina, in Cordoba, in Argentina. So he ended up in, in, uh, in Santa Fe, perhaps drinking a little too much, all of us were. And then he suddenly, all of a sudden, said, I'm not going to drink anymore. And he started taking his, his, his art more seriously. And we asked him to put some, some murals on, and he went crazy. 
One of the murals Moyano painted features a spirited, impressionistic scene of an imagined feria in Sevilla. Guitarists, dancers, and women with flowers in their hair clap and sway in motion against an abstract display of yellow and green pigments. This colorful tableau provides a backdrop for the small stage, which, each weekend, transforms the room into a supper club, showcasing the best flamenco this side of Spain. This long-enduring tradition is what's brought me here tonight, and remains one of David's greatest surviving contributions. It's, it's primal. Uh, it can be as gut-wrenching as anything you've ever heard. Uh, the singers, the dancers, the, uh, the sophistication, and yet so earthy. Uh, I remember uh, uh, seeing people that had never seen flamenco before see it for the first time were awestruck. They were just, they were just, what? Where have I ever been that I have not heard this? And it didn't matter where they came from. It didn't matter what, uh, what, uh, what background they had. Uh, if it got to you, you felt it. David's background is modest. And you could say his beginnings belie the casually confident image he projects. Now in his 70s and short in stature, if not presence, he grew up the son of a shopkeeper in the small town of Hernandez, New Mexico. The store and the house were attached. And so... Uh, it was a general store. We sold everything. Uh, we sold uh, everything, and we delivered all over northern New Mexico and uh, to different houses and things of that sort. We sold 100-pound uh, bags of uh, potatoes and beans and flour and things of that sort, and it was really a general store. We even sold coffins, if you can believe. <laughs> My father... Difficult person to get close to, but he was, he was, uh, his lessons were, were long-lasting. He didn't have much education, but he was the smartest man I've ever known. He handled customers well. He treated them well, much better than he did his, his boys. <laughs> I, we grew up working. I mean, we were open six, seven days a week, and so uh, the store opened early and closed late. This work was so tough, as a young man, David says he defiantly told his father he would never own a business. And for many years, that was a promise he kept. After college, he moved to Washington, where he eventually worked as a speechwriter during the Carter administration, rubbing elbows with the likes of Cesar Chavez. Yet, following the Reagan revolution, Salazar found his way back to Santa Fe, where he decided to try his hand at commercial real estate. So, the first listing that I got was for the sale of El Farol. I just couldn't get the people that wanted to buy it to concentrate and sit down to do the transaction. So uh, the, 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 um, I finally said, maybe I should look at it. And so I went to, the, to my client and I said, I think I've sold your place and I'm going to buy it. The only thing that was for sale was the business, not the property or the liquor license or anything of that sort. So I insisted uh, that I have at least an option to buy, to buy the property. And the, the, the lady that was the owner of the place said that uh, uh, we natives of Santa Fe don't sell property. We don't sell land. He said, I understand, and I'm from this part of the country, and I know exactly where you're coming from. 
And she says, have you ever been in the restaurant business? And I said, I have never been in the restaurant business. And that was the truth. I had never, never done that. Uh, and so she finally agreed. I think she felt sorry for me. And, uh, and I had a three-year option on it. We set the price on everything at that time with an increase in, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in the rate of inflation or whatever it is that we said, I can't remember. And with two years and six months, I went up to her house and I said, I'm going to exercise the option. And somebody in that house says, you're an SOB, or more explicit. And I said, thank you very much. And I've got the papers here, and we can do it. <laughs> David's career as a realtor proved short-lived, as El Farol was his first and last listing. At the same time, being new to the business side of hospitality, his early days were not without buyer's remorse. I remember one time, uh, my mother came up from, from Hernandez, and she says, I want you to meet me at El Farol, and it was a Sunday, and I hadn't, and I wasn't opening on a Sunday. And I said, "Mom, I don't want to be there. I don't, I don't know what I've done. I've, I've, I've messed up." He says, "I want you to be there, and come, come up right away." And so she came there, and she had the priest from Cristo Rey there, and she says, "I've, I've asked the priest if he would bless the place." And the priest, the priest had apparently told her, I've never blessed the bar before, <laughs> which I thought, of course. But my mom was pretty insistent, and she could get her way sometimes. And sure enough, he went around, and he spread holy water all over the place, and I'm doing <laughs> stuff. And uh, maybe it's just in my head, but it started doing better after that. So it worked. Following a few early hiccups, he was introduced to New York tapas chef Denise Dresmond, who revitalized the menu. And it wasn't long before he started hosting entertainment every night. Sometimes there was blues in the bar and dancing on the patio, with people like David Byrne and others taking the stage for impromptu jams. I used to have a, uh, and he's still around, uh, Jerry Carthy, Irish, and uh, he was playing at El Farol. It was a Thursday I remember, and so he was singing and stuff like that. And there was a, there was a table in the next in the next room that was right adjacent to the bar, and one of the guys got up and said, and and they knew each other from Ireland and things of that sort. And he and he sang a song with them and things of that sort. Uh, and so he came back to the table, and I heard him say to the table, he says, "They don't know who we are." And says, "Let." And they got up and said, "Let's let's knock their socks off." And um, and it was you too. <laughs> Way before cell phones, the only thing I phone I had there was a, and I used to use it as an office phone. Was a was a phone booth, was a phone payphone, and uh, there was a line at the payphone phone, and soon afterwards, <laughs> the place was packed. <laughs> Things like that. But while nights like these prove memorable. The flamenco is what helped cement El Farol's reputation. And Vicente has never forgotten his first night performing here. I came in and I, and I didn't know how to sing a lot of anything. This was maybe 25 years ago. And some singer got sick and they found out that I had been singing. Uh, 
I somehow got contacted and I showed up and I, I didn't even have the right pair of pants to wear. Well, that became my weekly gig. Right off the right out of the shoot, I'd show up on Thursday nights and would perform in the bar. And so I, I my first show was uh, like 1996. And uh, anyway, I find out that the owner of El Farol was my primo, David Salazar, distantly, of course. And uh, so, of course, we, we had the old school mafioso connection. Like, he had to do right by my family and I had to do right by his. And he had a bottle of 18-year-old um, Macallan scotch. And he said, you want a scotch? I said, I don't even know what a scotch is. Is that some kind of tape? And he said, oh, you've got to learn. He said, there's a bottle and it's not for sale. It's for me and now it's for you. So every time you're here, mijito, I want for you to have a, a drink of scotch and get to know what a good scotch is. He said, what do you normally drink? I was like, um, anything, sir. And um, the second he walked away, I realized that that was my bottle of scotch and it was worth, you know, a few hundred bucks to us. That's like, it might as well be a million dollars. And so I, I unloaded it and gave everybody in the bar a drink until it was finished. Because that's what you do when somebody gives you a bottle of scotch, right? And so, you know, because it, where I'm from and where you're from, I see now, we have a dicho, uno es rico por lo que das, no por lo que tienes. The saying, the dicho that I just said is, one is rich for what you can give, not for what you can have. And so, you know, on that principle, I gave it all away and I had a bunch myself. And uh, the next week I came in, he said, the bottle's gone. What happened? I said, well, uno es más rico por lo que da, no por lo que tiene. And he laughed and he said, okay, new rule, you can't give it away. And you can only have five shots a night, five. And so, yeah, that's my first time singing Red Parol. Some of the wildest nights were when the, when the senor, I call them the Santa Fe senoritos, would show up and they were buzzed and they were feeling groovy. And David would lock the doors and he'd say, guys, this contract is now between you. Let me know what you need. And we would keep the party going till six in the morning and then maybe into the next day. And then they'd be opening and we'd still have a corner. And that would last for days. And um, I, I, that was incredible. I, I mean, once upon a time in Santa Fe, right? But a nice thing about David is he was a good boxer. I saw guys come in thinking they were gonna come and break into this El Farol and David would just stand there and box these guys. And that was crazy too. You know, David was not this giant man, but boy, he was wiry. David doesn't dispute this account, though he says sometimes a little moxie was all that was needed to keep things from escalating. There was a guy that was misbehaving, big old dude. And if you know me, I'm not big, I'm short. And I'm looking and I said, I can take care of this because I noticed that there was a friend of mine that was at the door and he was shorter than I, he's a midget. I went up to him and I said, you and I are going to throw that guy out of here. And so he said, David, you have really lost it this time. And I said, trust me, we can do this. And so we walked up and I poked, I reached up to hit him in the elbow. And I told him that my friend and I were going to escort him out because he was be misbehaving and people were not having a good time because of him. 
So he gets up and he says, who's going to do it? And I said, my friend and I are going to escort you out. So he starts looking around and people are edging to the front of their seats and things of that sort because they thought they were going to have to save me. And they would have. And so he reads the, the, the offending person and reads the situation fairly well. And he took, he, he made the right decision. He says, I've been thrown out of better places and all the cliches that you've ever heard and this and that and the other. So the band stop and we walk out. My co-bouncer and I uh, are making sure he leaves. And so we, we walk back in. I thought they were going to see a bloody mess walk back in. And, and so my friend looks at him and he says, we took care of that, didn't we? And he claps his hands like he's wiping them off and everybody busted out laughing. And so the good and the bad and uh, all, of them, all of them were, were, were in the end, good. Be that as it may, good times can be exhausting. And after 32 years, David shocked Santa Fe in 2017 when he announced he'd be turning El Farol's keys over to Frida and some new investors. But retirement isn't something Mr. Salazar does well, and you can find him now holding court at the Primo Cigar Shop, a humidor and lounge he bought two years ago where visitors can still experience his fine hospitality accompanied by fine tobacco. Uh, I had to do something, and I had to be, and I might as well be a part of this as as anything else because I used to come here often it also has a place where a lot of people come and sit down and discuss and and opine about different kind of different kind of things whether it's religion or politics or 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 anything else and same kind of arguments the same kind of uh, debate the same kind of uh, passion uh, and so uh uh, I'm glad I got here because what would I be doing at home? I've always had a photograph that I that I that I have had at every one of my jobs and businesses, and it is my grandfather and his family, my grandmother on my father's side. When my father was just in that photograph, he's just six years old, and uh, they're the ones that have given me strength because they look as old world as you can possibly get. And they were dressed in their very best. And um, and it's something that would always be with me. As for El Farol, while on the surface Frida bears little resemblance to her mentor David, having worked here for the better part of a decade, she understands this place's aura. And as I sip Rioja, well, Mario, Vicente, and a trio of dancers take the stage... I'm enveloped by the famous embrujo I was warmed of. Martha Graham once said, The body says what words cannot. And attempting to describe the intense passion and intimacy of tonight's show would be a foolish exercise. What I will say is that when at a great performance, you enter a state of hypnosis. More than forcing me into the present, like stepping on a magic carpet, I feel this music, rapidly pounding feet, artwork, and paella transports me elsewhere, 
maybe a fantasy version of Andalusia. And then I realize that elsewhere just happens to be El Farol. And I hope its lantern continues to shine its beacon on Canyon Road for years to come. Thanks to all who made this episode possible. If you can't tell, I absolutely had a blast at El Farol and urge you to visit there if you're in Santa Fe. So you know their flamenco dinner show books up well in advance, so make certain to make a reservation at elfarolsantafe.com. I'll be including a link there in the show notes, as well as the Primo Cigar Shop, where my tobacco lovers can not only enjoy some fine blends, but the company of David Salazar. I also thank you for listening. If you found this episode engaging and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow, and doing that guarantees you will never miss any content. Also, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could just take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more, please find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com, where you're always welcome to reach out. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. Postcards.